Where were you on 9-11? It's a question many people can answer right away. For one journalist, the answer is up in the air. Welcome to Reporting on 9-11, where we hear the emotional, true stories of local journalists who brought us the news from the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, two decades ago. I'm your host, David DeRoche. In this episode, we're going to hear about how a box of donuts helped Ken Bennett and his wife get home after all flights in the U.S. were grounded. On September 11th, Ken had been what he calls a TV newsman for 30 years. He worked as a reporter and anchor at the ABC affiliate in New Haven, Connecticut from 1970 until the early 80s, and he became a TV news consultant. His job was to travel the country teaching journalists how to anchor and produce better shows, but he still stayed in the action occasionally. In the late summer of 2001, he was working as a freelance newsroom manager at Connecticut's Fox affiliate, while the station's news director was on maternity leave. That job ended on September 10th. The next day, Ken and his wife boarded a plane to head from their home in Connecticut to a television news director's convention in Nashville by way of Chicago. So my wife and I are putting ourselves on board in first class, first row, uh, with all of the amenities and just a beautiful start to what we're hoping is a part business trip and a part luxury <laughs> vacation. Uh, it was only going to be four days, but it was going to be a great four days. We did not know as we flew to Chicago anything that was going on at the same time we were in the air. Now, we took off around 8 o'clock Eastern at 7.59, American Airline Flight 11, uh, with 81 passengers, took off in Boston, heading for Los Angeles with five hijackers. I mean, we learned that later. The other hijacked planes took off from East Coast airports at 8.14, 8.20, and 8.42 that morning. That means Ken and his wife were in the air, flying a similar route west on United, one of the targeted airlines. At the very same time, terrorists were taking over the planes that would eventually crash into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Luckily, their flight landed without any problems in Chicago. The flight crew didn't mention anything was wrong, but when he entered the terminal, Ken noticed things were a little odd. When we got off the plane, we're walking down a long corridor, and to our right, uh, we see a bar with a TV set, and the bar is crowded. You know, and... On the TV set, we see some building burning. We have no idea what that is. And then just about that time, uh, my cell phone went off, a flip phone. And it's got a recorded message, my older daughter, who is screaming and crying. Are you all right? Are you all right? And I said to my wife, Bonnie, I said, what, what's going on? And I st still hadn't connected her phone call to what was on that TV set that we just walked past. We got into the red carpet club. So I went up to the desk, which they are concierges. They can change your flight. They can make miracles happen. And uh, they're always very courteous. And I showed my card. And I looked around, and I see all the TV sets are showing this building burning, not, no sound. And I said, what's going on? And she said, between you and me, they're hijacking planes, and they're blowing up buildings. And I said, what? And she said, yeah. And uh, as we're speaking, I, I had asked, 
how are we going to get to Nashville? And she said, I don't know. And when the, the, the national ground stop indicator came in, I said, what's that mean? She said, I don't know. She asked the woman next to her, and she says, all I know is it means all aircraft in the sky, the whole country, has to land at the nearest airport right now. She said, you know, go in there, and if there's anything changes, I'll call you up. They weren't making announcements, and shortly thereafter, they turned off the TV sets, and I went up and said, why'd you turn off the TVs? And she said, um, it's making people uncomfortable. Now, we still didn't know whether these were accidents. Uh, again, we're, when, when the set was on in there, it was still silent, and I hadn't called home. It, it was about to happen right away. I said, I got to call home. I, I didn't associate the phone call with anything that was on TV, but when I spoke to my daughter and she told me what's going on, it was like, oh my God, how horrible. And she said, yeah, Dad. And we thought one of the planes they were going to hijack is the one you're on because you're on United, you're heading west, you just took off, and that's what, that's what we're hearing about. So we finally got word that we weren't going to Nashville. Uh, she said, we have no idea when you're going home or anywhere right now. We don't know. We really don't know anything. Knowing they weren't going to leave Chicago, Ken and his wife decided to try to get their suitcases. But when they got to the luggage carousel, they were in for another shock. There's a, a mob there, and uh, the baggage is coming off, and a, a United person says, uh, if you don't get your baggage here, it has gone to the edge of the field, and it's going to be burned and, you know, they were, they, the explanation that I got was they were fearful of a bomb being in the baggage and they were going to just blow it up because they couldn't search the thousands of bags that were piling up. My wife was in a panic and I was in a panic. I mean, like, there was more than just our clothing in there. You know, we, there were things I needed. And as a journalist, I, I wasn't even taking pictures. I mean, I was going to take one at the airport baggage and I got a very dirty look when I took out my camera, you know, it's before cell phones took pictures, really, and I got a, a look that said, put the camera away. Uh, I really didn't want to do that, but at that point, I realized I'm, I'm not covering a story. I'm in one, and it's really serious. Fortunately, United quickly changed its mind and said it would send all the bags back to the passengers' home airports, but that still left Ken and his wife with no clothes and nowhere to go. After some scrambling, they found a room at a nearby hotel. They headed to Kmart to get some clothes and some other things they need, still not knowing when or even how they'd be able to get home. All he could do was sit there and watch other people cover the story he was living. Now at the hotel, uh, Channel 9 in Chicago, WGN-TV, was carrying, rebroadcasting Channel 11 New York, WPIX, another Tribune station. So from then on, almost at all times, we were watching Channel 9 Chicago showing us what's going on in New York. We watched in a room filled with stuck travelers when President Bush made his speech. And uh, that was a time of unity. Everybody in that room and across the country, it, it was like the Kennedy assassination. No matter what your beliefs are or what you think is going on, you were all Americans and we're all in the same situation. So that was a very touching speech. When he wasn't watching the coverage from New York, D.C., or Pennsylvania, Ken was trying to find a way out of Chicago, along with tens of thousands of other travelers. It was people from all over the country, 
as well as international travelers. And what we had in common was we didn't know when we were going home. At the same time, there were people who managed to get rental cars, and then there were no rental cars. They were able to get tickets on trains, then there were no trains. There were people buying cars to drive home and then resell them when they got somewhere. And that wasn't going to happen with us. We just figured we're going to ride it out, and eventually we're going to get somewhere. If it's not Nashville, it's going to get home. So as the days went by, we had some friends in Chicago. They took us out for sushi. Uh, Krispy Kreme was, we didn't have it in Connecticut yet. They took us there, and uh, we were given a lot of Krispy Kreme when they heard what happened. They, they said, take this back to the hotel. I always made friends and still do with desk people, and I brought this big box to the desk and said, here, and it was Krispy Kreme, and she you know, thought I gave her gold ingots. So we were reasonably comfortable. And then, as I said, I had we had friends in Chicago. We passed the time. And then Thursday night when we came in, having been out with her friends, the uh, woman at the desk said, uh, Mr. Bennett, uh, would you come over here? I want to tell you something. And, you know, it couldn't imagine what she was going to tell me. I, I didn't have time to process or guess. And she said, how would you like to go home tomorrow? I said, what do you mean home? She said, I can get you to New York City. How? There is a limousine leaving Denver, Colorado. It is being driven by the owner of the limo company who is from New York City. ABC is limoing their Monday night football graphics specialist because there was a game Monday night and he, he has to get back because he's got the next Monday night game. I'm still not understanding. She says, so the limo is going to drop off somebody here in Chicago and pick up somebody in Chicago and then proceed to New York City. Would you, they have two spaces. It was a town car, not a stretch limo. She says they have two spaces and they have room. <laughs> I don't have any luggage. They have room for your bag, you know, what we filled from Kmart. And I said, what, what do I pay? And she says, you don't have to pay anything because ABC is paying for the limo. And, and the limo driver said, I've got room for two more. And she thought of us. I think the Krispy Kremes had something to do with it. But, you know, we're nice people anyway. The, the next step is to get in the limo, and we're, we're going to share the driving. The, you know, the, the driver who started in Denver said I could use some help. So I volunteered to take the first shift, which was from Chicago to the Indiana line. And then somebody took over Ohio and then Pennsylvania and then into New York. And we made one pit stop, which was really a pit stop. Fuel the car. Uh, my wife went in. I went in. And uh, we, we gathered up a whole bunch of snacks. During the long drive, Ken's journalistic instincts again kicked in. He learned something he knew he had to share but he was frustrated because he had no way to do it. When my shift was over, and I'm sitting next to this gentleman, and being a journalist, I asked questions, and I said, so what do you do that, you know, you get picked up in Chicago and back to New York in a limo? And he said, he's an architectural engineer. And I said, what is an architectural engineer? He says, well, you know, architects design buildings, and we figure out how to build them. Oh, and I said, well, what do you think of the buildings in New York that collapsed like that? Because we'd never seen anything like that. And he said, 
it's relatively simple. In other words, the plan is relatively simple. The execution of it, he said, that's difficult. And I said, well, what's the plan? He says, you're, for, you're looking for a terrorist who looks like me. And that was a, what? He says, yeah, uh, picture a guy at a drawing board, and he is designing a building, meeting the building codes. And I said, well, of course. He says, no. Uh, in San Francisco years before, there was a World Series, and it was interrupted by an earthquake. And all over town, natural gas explosions brought buildings down. The steel that was used to build them didn't survive the heat that was generated by that natural gas. Since then, building codes all over the country have required iron and steel to withstand 1,200 degrees for one hour. That would give people a chance to get out, and then the buildings would probably collapse. And, I, and knowing that the World Trade Center, there had been an attempt to blow it up, but from underneath with dynamite, I said, well, what, do you, what did they do differently? He says, the weapons were the aircraft. And well, that seemed to make sense. I mean, yeah, that's the only thing. There were no bombs. There were no you know, machine guns or cannons or anything like that. And he said, they needed a way to ignite a payload. In other words, instead of having a, a bomb, they needed something else that would burn intensely for as long as it would take for the steel in the corners of the building, which actually were the ones that held it up, to melt and then the buildings would collapse. All they have to do is hit the building anywhere. Uh, jet fuel is the most explosive liquid there is and having a full payload of jet fuel. I said, those planes were going from the east coast to the west coast. They had just taken off. That was as deadly a bomb. Think of the plane as a bomb. And the delivery mechanism was just crash it anywhere, and that's it. And I, I was stunned. And uh, in the months and years to come, that was one of the explanations. And I'll just never forget Again, I'm sitting there with this information, and it's like, I don't have any way of disseminating this. I mean, I, it's not like I could take my flip phone and record it and press a button and send it somewhere or you know, take a, a phone out and, and somehow connect it to a Zoom or, or other stuff. But again, I had to remember that I'm, I'm part of a story, not, I'm not covering that story. I'm caught up in something that took a while to understand and there, but for the, the grace of whatever uh, was controlling all of our lives, I could have been on a, another United flight going in the same direction at the same time with the same results. I mean, I, I, I can understand how when people survive something, they have this thing called survivor's guilt. I, I can't say that I have quite that full dimension of it. But I look back and I can see that and remember the terror that my family felt uh, because we were, through no fault of our own, possibly liable to the same end that was taking up the world's attention. So that's my story 20 years later. I'm 20 years older and 20 years wiser, but I see things as if it happened yesterday. Shortly after 9-11, Ken pulled back on his consulting work. Instead, he started teaching journalism to university students in Connecticut, where he often shares this story and what he learned about the difference between living a story 
and covering it. Thank you for listening to Reporting on 9-11. This episode was reported, written, edited, and produced by Ben Bogardis, a journalism professor at Quinnipiac University, and hosted by me, David DeRoche. I am the Director of Community Programming at the University. Special thanks for this episode go out to Ken Bennett, Quinnipiac University's School of Communications, and the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio, where this episode was recorded. For more stories from journalists who covered 9-11, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and also be sure to check out the other shows produced out of the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio by going over to qu.edu slash podcast.